In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Christ is risen. Harisuto suhukatsu. Yes. Christos anviat. That's an easier one. Okay. We have to learn the Vietnamese before the end of the season. I will come prepared next week to, tr- to try. Christ is risen. risen. This morning I'm reminded of the, this line from Psalm 57. My heart is ready, O God. My heart is ready. I will sing and give praise in my glory. There are many themes that can be drawn from today's reading. We, it's kind of unfair to only get one Sunday for this reading. Because there's so many rich and beautiful themes in this uh, interaction that Christ had. The longest recorded interaction that he had with any single person. The longest conversation in, in the whole Bible that Christ had with any, anyone. Um, it's worth spending time with this week, going back to listening to what it has to say and drawing from the waters of wisdom that are present in this particular story. Among the themes that I noticed in there were some like the universality of the faith. Every soul is betrothed to God, says St. Gregory Palamas. Every soul is betrothed to God, but not every soul is wedded to Him. Not every soul has chosen to be wed to Him. Also, we see the theme of the biblical nature of the faith. Truth is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. St. Fotini, the woman at the well, expressed the longing for a Messiah spoken of by the prophet Moses. When she said, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. We also see the baptismal imagery in this and in last week's reading. We see that, in, that the image of water popping up a lot during this season, actually. If you listen to any of the hymns that are being sung, everything is being likened to water the refreshing water that quenches the thirsty and that gives life to the barren. But we notice in these two stories from last week and this week in particular that the cleansing and healing that takes place, it always corresponds not to the person's interaction with the water itself, but actually to God acting upon it by way of His Word. We see in both readings that neither person was physically immersed in the waters. Interestingly enough, in one of the hymns for today, I think we heard it last night, she went with with her bowl to receive the water, or with her jar to receive the water from the well, but she left her jar empty on the ground, running back to the city, having been filled with the waters of life. So it's not the water itself that's the point. Just like as in baptism, and in the readings, the, the paralytic of last week and the woman in today's readings, they're cleansed by their encounter with Christ. 
and His authority over creation as God Himself over them directly. The image of baptism is present today, also associated with the well, referred to subtly as a spring. It evokes the image image of living water, living water as that of baptism, as of the cleansing that takes place only by the intervention of God himself, which he does accomplish now in us by means of baptism. The reference to water should also always remind us of the Holy Spirit, which quenches the dryness of the soul, slaking the parchedness of a people thirsting for meaning and purpose. We're reminded of the words also found in the Gospel of John. First quoting Christ, Christ saying, He who believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then the author says, But this Christ spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we have so many rich and beautiful themes, and the theme of water is one that is especially significant. Today I want to cling to the words from the Gospel reading, The hour is coming and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such the Father seeks to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. I want to emphasize that faith Our faith is worshipful. Our faith is doxological, we call it. Our bishop was here once, and he said something that might have been something, it was more like, sometimes you know when you hear a a literal translation, it sounds a little awkward, from, from Greek to English, or when someone who speaks another language is trying to express something and they use the definite article, like the in the wrong place or something like that, and you go, but you know what they're saying and it actually expresses a nuance that maybe isn't there in our language. Well, our bishop was here once talking and he said, our life is to be not worshipful or an act of worship, but to be a worship, he said. Our life is to be a worship. Just like we are to be those, not just who pray, but living prayers. The whole of our life is to be a worship. It is to be worshipful, but not just an expression, you know, of something other than ourselves. But we ourselves are to be living worships, you could say. Worshippers. But I loved that little Nuance. Our life is to be a worship, an ongoing, constant doxology, a praise of God. And so, of worship in spirit, I offer two thoughts. Worship in spirit, and then we'll talk about worship in truth. Two just simple thoughts. Worship in spirit, that worship is non-local, and that worship is hyper-local. First, worship is non-local. What I mean by saying this is, I'm trying to be a little provocative maybe, a little intriguing, because what I want to say is that worship is not limited to a specific geographic locale. 
Christ revealed this in today's reading. He said, they won't worship here or there on Mount Gerasim or in Jerusalem or anywhere, but they will worship in spirit and in truth. We'll be reminded of this again when we resume the prayer on Pentecost, when we say, O Heavenly King, Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things. From the inception of humanity, of course, there have been those who have followed God, but also there have been those who have turned against Him. Many, that is, people turn to worship the creation rather than the Creator, while others have often sought to transcend or escape the creation. Neither is correct, because true worship does not have to do with locale. It's not limited to a specific place, nor does it take its leave from physical creation, but it employs it in accordance with its original purpose. And this leads to the next point, that worship is hyper-local, in that it's not necessarily limited to a specific time or place. Therefore, we can draw the conclusion that it's hyper-local, meaning it's really local. It's local to the human person. That the body itself is a microcosm of the church, a place of worship. And then we talked about this in catechism last week and the week before. But the church itself is even a microcosm, the church building of what God intended the creation to be. We'll talk about that. St. Maximus the Confessor says that God's holy church is itself a symbol of the sensible world. You could say that the church itself, the church building, becomes a lens through which we come to understand the creation outside of the church. The church is a symbol of the sensible world since it possesses a divine sanctuary behind me as heaven, the beauty of the nave as earth. Likewise, the world is a church since it possesses heaven corresponding to a sanctuary, the firmament above, and a nave it has for the adornment of the earth. In the human person, we find the image of the church of the sensible world as well. We could say of the person that the heart of the person corresponds to the sanctuary or the holy place where offerings are made to God. This is the closet within which we receive to pray. It corresponds to the cave where Christ is to be born and the altar where we offer all that has been given to us so that we might receive it in return as made holy imbued with divine energy of God to enliven us and through us to enliven the world around us. So the heart is the sanctuary, the holy of holies within the person. And the mind is like the nave where we are right now. The mind is like the nave where we come, we enter in and we consent to position ourselves before God. The mind is the point of entry into the kingdom of God. The means by which we say yes unto the God who calls us to become partakers of his holy mysteries. And the faculty used to articulate the experience of life and of the life of faith. The heart is the sanctuary. The mind is the nave. What about the body? 
The body is the frame and structure of the church. Housing the nave and the sanctuary, the holy place. The body is made holy by finding its purpose in relation to that function to be a place of worship. It's not inanimate and meaningless, the same we would say of the the walls and ceiling of this, this building. But it serves as a conduit for the very energy of God's grace. As a church building, the body can become a place of worship. And one that never ceases to be a place of worship. Worship is something that becomes local to wherever I am. Remember the words of St. Paul. I beseech you, he says, Brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Or another translation says, your spiritual act of worship. So worship is non-local, not limited to a specific place, but it's hyper-local because it's local to who we are. What of worship in truth then? Worship is always specific to Christ. It's Christocentric. It's incarnational. To worship in truth means to worship in relation to Christ. The one by whom heaven and earth have been brought together. He's the I am, we call him, the one who is. And we hear reiterated in today's reading, I who speak to you am he. I am he. I am the one. I am the being. I am the person and the source. The one in relation to whom you come to know who you are. That's why she could go back and say, Come and see the one who told me everything that I've ever done. Because he's the one who knows us as we truly are. One of the nuances in this story that I think is so profound is that when she comes to the well to draw water and he says, give me some water to drink, she's pretty dumbfounded. One, because she's a Samaritan. Two, because she's a woman. And three, because she's a sinful person, an adulterer having had many spouses. And so what do we do in the face of the revelation of all that should be shameful? We tuck ourselves away. But then he draws her forth from herself. So we can even say, going with that metaphor, she came to draw water from the well, but he drew drew her forth from the depths of her own being and revealed who she truly is. By his grace. That's a beautiful metaphor worth considering. So she would say, this well isn't for you. Because it's inappropriate to you. The water's tainted. And he says, blow the lid off of the top of that well. Let me touch the water and it will be made pure. By becoming vulnerable to him. By becoming accessible to the one who we know we're not worthy of being accessible too. That's why he came down and became one of us among us. Man, Man, that's right. 
as I continue to say, and touching us and being with us so that we can't use that mode of defense anymore. Well, we do, but we don't have to hide ourselves or shield ourselves anymore because we see that he came so that we might be laid bare before him. All of the shame that we have exposed to the one who takes it away and cleanses, cleanses us. So he said, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah, who is to tell us all things, she said. The one to reveal the truth to the parched land and the thirsty world in the form of himself. Since worship cannot be separated from Christ, then, who is the one who became man, the God-man, worship is always a perfect commingling of the human and the divine. We call it theanthropic. It's one of my favorite words. Theanthropic comes from theos, God, and anthropos, man. And the two are perfectly welded together in Christ. And then we become participants in that theanthropic, divine human nature. And what we find when we enter into that worship is that the two cannot be separated from one another. He became what we are, and as we enter into the worship, we become increasingly, by His grace, what He is. Because that's what He created us to be. The truth, the meaning of life, and our return to it has been revealed to us in this Theanthropos, this God-man, because, because of whom we can come to live worshipful and theanthropic lives. For this very reason, we're united to one another in Him. Our worship in spirit and in truth unites us and causes us to be inextricably bound to one another. If we take this teaching and this calling seriously, if we allow ourselves to be transformed and transfigured by Him. I was just telling someone this week, one of the reasons that I was set out to find the church, having grown up in a Protestant church that, that didn't believe that there was any one church in particular, but that we were all somehow just, we were somehow one, even though we didn't agree, we, even though we had differences. But it was this very idea that those who love Christ so much who have fallen in love with him, become inextricably bound to one another, is the conviction that led me to either say, we need a new revival and we need to, you know, call everyone back to become the one true church, or even better, it's already existed. It's, it's, it's always been there. And I need to change. I need to become a part of it. And then we find... I mean, I remember walking in these doors and I felt like I was in heaven and I knew what my purpose was. That's what this voice is for. Singing praises to God. That's what this arm is for. Making the sign of the cross. That's what my waist is for. Bowing low. That's what these eyes are for. Seeing the things 
of heaven, gazing upon the God who became man in the images of the deified ones who chose to follow him. That's what these feet are for, carrying me around this place in procession and out the door to serve the world and so on. It all came together and that's what we are for. For one another because we're bound to one another on account of our intense love for Christ. And that's why we have an uncompromising approach to unity. That's why unity is so important. It's not an ecclesiological principle that states that the church has to be an institutional unity. No. It's on account of the incredible belief that we have in the person of Christ who came to reconcile all men to himself. And we believe that that reconciliation is taking place in the church. And then we worship him together. That's what we do. Our life together becomes a worship. An act of worship. Worshipful. So beloved in Christ. The one who loves us. The one who knows us. And revealed himself to us. In spite of us. Perpetually offers himself to us. What is it that we long for? We are thirsty. Parched. Sometimes. We have before us the water which when consumed will cause us never to become thirsty again. Never empty. Never alone. Never devoid of purpose. Before us we have a stream of living water. The grace of the Holy Spirit. Let us all continually seek to become living temples of God wherein the Spirit of God dwells. Having wed ourselves to many more than five husbands to our own preoccupations and sins, let us now unite ourselves to the one to whom our souls have been betrothed from the beginning. And I have to end with one of my favorite quotes from St. Isaac. I desire not to count milestones, but to enter the bridal chamber. May it be so. Glorify him with me. Glorify him with me. Let us wed ourselves to the bridegroom through the intercessions of the holy glorious martyr Fotini and of all the saints. Amen. Christ is risen. Amen.